Call it. Call it, yes. For a whole lot. Just call it. Welcome to episode 29 of Call It Friend, or the podcast where two friends watch two films decided by the flip of a coin. This week, myself, Andy J. Ritchie, and my co-host Donna Katirnan watched the films of acclaimed Australian filmmaker Kate Shortland, 2004's Somersault, 2012's Laura, and 2017's Berlin Syndrome. As always, this podcast contains spoilers for all three of the films right from the start. Check out JustWatch.com for streaming and rental options in your region. Please follow Call It Friend, or podcast on Instagram, like the Facebook page, leave a review on iTunes, or any or all of the above. If you'd like to get in touch, please send us an email at callitfriendopodcast at gmail.com. Or alternatively, you can go and petition Kate Shortland to send us a copy of Black Widow. That will suffice. Thank you. What have you been watching? I've watched uh, a, quite a bit of television. I saw. I finished. Finally finished season five of The Expanse. How long? How far along are you on that? I've only seen the first two seasons. Oh, okay. Well, no plot spoilers, but it was very good. Excellent world building continuing, and an exciting overarching plot on Earth and the Belt. Uh, so all good except for did we did we talk about Cass Anvar? before anvar who's that the, the look of your on your face the actor who plays alex kamal the pilot mm, they're like the main the character the pilot guy who's like hoss not the main character he's, oh, they, he's he, one of kinda the four like a, the indian looking fella <laughs> the indian look, i think he's like egyptian maybe uh, or persian sorry i think like he's persian a, i mean i think indian looking is okay i'll t- listen I think you're a disgrace. <laughs> you're a disgrace. Uh, that may I might be. actually hang up this Zoom call. Yeah, so anyway, mild spoilers. This, these are only mild spoilers for The Expanse, but he me tooed a bunch of young girls. So they had no choice but to fire him and write the character out of the show. But they did it in the most, like, Poochie died on the way back to his home planet way <laughs> that it's so it's so badly undercut the tension of the finale. Uh, that was just the most disappointing part. And when you finally get around to seeing it, it's just it, it really doesn't work. So did he but do his filming... me tooing after he had shot season five, or did the, the revelations I come think out? They already knew, I think, before they filmed season five, but they <laughs> held an internal investigation. And the investigation decided that I'm sorry, sorry, Cass Anvar, but you cancelled. I mean, so, like it sounds like the it sounds like uh, Amazon Studios might have boosted the statistics, like the homicide division in Baltimore, a little bit, you know, just to get through. You to think the they were? The, you the, think the they were season. juking the stats? Yeah, yeah, yeah I think so. They, that's, they, that's they, the they knocked a couple of Me Too's off. <laughs> yeah, potentially. <laughs> but. I'm guessing you haven't read anything of the books either, right? No, no, I haven't. But I mean, here's the like. Me neither. Okay, so the the reason I space out TV shows like this is there's so much good stuff, and I just find mm. that just I think bin- you're right to do it. B- binging, like I just lose the taste of what I'm watching. It's even happening me to, happening to me now because I like I'm just watching so much of the West Wing season two, and sure, there's like 22 episodes, so I'm almost like I'm I'm just done episode 20 there. And it's almost like I've kind of stopped noticing it. And it's so fantastic. 
Like the West Wing is just mm-hmm. terrific. But yeah, that, like this is exactly the reason why I, I space things out like that. So, but I'm loving The Expanse, everything I've seen of it. And I've heard it already well, gets it better. It gets so much better. Yeah, it gets so much better because they keep expanding everything. I mean, they're filming a season six, which should cover the next book in the series. And then I think they're going to have to take a long break if they ever mm. come back because they have to compensate for a uh, time jump in the narrative. I haven't read any of the books, but I hear they're great. And uh... It's like such a good example of how good something can get when there's more trust put in the audience. Sure, absolutely. I found, uh, I mean, it took me a while to get through the first season, I remember. But when I got to about halfway through season three, that's when it really kicked into gear. When you see the ring gate things, slight spoilers. But yeah, it's, uh, no, it's a solid, solid show. Well, the, and the, apparently Bezos is a big fan, which is why he continued to fund episodes. Oh, ah, that's Amazon. cool. That's the kind yeah. of thing that you want to hear. I mean, Bill Gates, mm-hmm. they're trying to, sol- <laughs> trying to fix AIDS, loser. Just yeah, keep I mean, it he should light. be watching The Expanse. If like Bill Bates was person. half the man Jeff Bezos was, there would have been a series two of Firefly. That's all I'm saying. So apart from that, I've also, off the back of your recommendation, I started watching Save Me. Oh right! Did you? Are you enjoying it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a few episodes in. I'm really enjoying it. I see what you mean. It's an excellent series. It's really mm. well done. It's interesting. I'm ex- I'm excited to see where it goes. I don't know if "excited" is the right word, but I'm interested to see where it goes. It expands more, obviously, in the second season too. But I, mm. I love the idea that um, the background cast of characters, like each of them, are so charismatic and interesting and. I feel like 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 I heard another critic say this, but I mean, you you could almost watch a show about any one of them, right? And yeah, I love the way. It, I mean, all of them you get glimpses of this, but Nelly is such a fully realized character. Yeah, I don't I don't want any spoilers, but the fact that there is a season two at this point, like for me, I'm three episodes in season one, so. The concept of a season two is like, why the fuck is there a season two? So I really, I don't want to talk about it any further. That's I'll have fine. finished it by the next, I guarantee I'll, I'll have watched all of season one and two by the next episode. Yeah, I'm yeah, I believe 100% yeah. sure. Yeah, I'm going to steamroll that. My last thing, which I'm sure it's something that you've watched too, so it can lead into yours, but... The other thing I watched was the first episode, of course, of Falcon, 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 Falcon and Winter Soldier. All right, what you think? Yeah, so what did... Well, I thought it was pretty lightweight, but I'm sure it's going to get a lot better. I didn't think there was much to the first episode. I'm looking forward to seeing Wyatt Russell as the new Captain America, but... Yeah, it was fine. I, like, it It took me longer to get into WandaVision. This just feels pretty throwaway so far. I don't know if it's going to develop into something meatier, but... I'm I'm happy to just whack this on and and not really worry about it like not really have to focus on it particularly. I'm generally not um that nitpicky of a watcher really. I like the Fast and the Furious franchise. I'm not that picky of a of a watcher. Okay. I enjoyed the opening action scene in this. I enjoyed all of the stuff with Bucky Barnes, but as, and I texted you about this. One decision in the plotting was mm-hmm. ju- I it was so s- unbelievably stupid i can't i don't know will i be able to get over it because you know the like the way that that was introduced that's going to be a continuing thread in the show that falcon cannot get credit i just think that's a damning indictment of the american financial <laughs> system well i also in think general. 
Doesn't the banker say that basically anybody who disappeared in the blip can't get credit? Yeah. I don't know. I, I, I don't know the point of that scene particularly, just to be like, uh, are, are they not just trying to set up that these heroes who saved the Earth are in a shitty position and no one actually really uh, yeah, cares? Yeah, but it's just anymore? lazy. No, like, I mean, because they're going at it. I would agree. It's not great. I agree with that. They're going at it kind of. Okay, like I'll gi- I'll give you this. Recently, I rewatched um, the first Iron Man film. Now, um, fair enough, the Incredible Hulk film is absolute garbage. But like, just to show some of the potentials that the Marvel Cinematic Universe is capable of, like the script for that first Iron Man film is so tight. Like everything syncs up nicely together. It really ju- just all works so well. And I just thought that. I don't know, because I mean they're clearly strumming a little bit on the on the race guitar with them, the Falcon not being able to get <laughs> the old credit. race guitar, yeah. And it's just like you know, I would be fine with them doing it. To be honest, I had expected it from the moment Steve Rogers gave um, what's his name Falcon. Okay, fine. From the moment Steve Rogers gave Falcon his shield, I was expecting something along these lines. But Frank Alkin, what is his name? <laughs> I don't Anthony know. Anthony Mackie. I mean, what's the character called? I've no idea. Falcon. Falky man. Falco. <laughs> anyway, yeah. Uh, amongst other things I've been watching, I finished uh, Apple's second season of Servant. Now, have you seen any of this show? The M. Night Shyamalan? Okay, Island? wait. Let me tell you. Sam Wilson. That's it. Sam Wilson. So the premise of the show is there's a couple, Toby Kebbell and Lauren, what's her name, from Six Feet Under, who they lose a child and not not the, nice. the wife has a complete uh, sort of a psychic break and in order to help her cope with her grief she's given a synthetic kind of a baby doll uh, in uh, at the same time a, a lady arrives responding to a notice that they had given out when their baby was alive for a nanny to come so oh it's mary this, poppins this lady comes but all of a, but then all of a sudden midway through the first episode by seemingly by magic she seems to have brought the baby back to life so mm. it continues the it continues on so far for 20 episodes about 30 minutes each um Jesus. there's cults um there's uh, Rupert Grint playing Lauren what's her name's alcoholic brother and he's just absolutely excellent uh, Toby Kebbell is a chef, but practicing from home, trying to come up with a, uh, re- recipe ideas. So it's all just shot like amazingly beautiful. But at the same time, I mean, it's it's like the ultimate sort of mystery box show in that you know. Yeah, the, it sounds mental. The entire thing that's driving it is what the fuck is happening, and the thing. So I got to binge watch all of the first season in like a night or two and that was great watching it because Apple for all its shows has a weekly release model and watching it week to week was incredibly frustrating Um, and I tried to on multiple occasions just say oh sure I'll just uh, save them up and cash them all in later but I couldn't do it but in the end like if anybody wants to just hop on board the train now they get to binge watch two seasons and I guarantee it'll be just as much fun cuz it is it's great fun. What else? Oh yeah, I saw the the grimmest film I've ever seen in my life. The grimmest film I've ever seen in my life is Snowtown, directed by Justin Kurtzel, actually written by um written by the bloke uh, Sean Grant who wrote Berlin Syndrome. So there's your connection. I think they have the same cinematographer as well, those two films. Could, I mean, could be, like, but 
they're just I'm worlds. pretty sure not they're, I mean because um, Somersault and I think Lauren Berlin Syndrome have the same cinematographer but I think also Snowtown because I think Kurzel Laura Kurzel, can see more of a connection with because Kurzel went on to do the Assassin's Creed film That's I remember right. which have I seen haven't that? seen no, but, no, uh, no 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 it looks awful but that's a hundred percent going to be in the toss in the future. That would be good. That would be a good one. Yeah, that that would be a good one. I mean, yeah. how else are we going to get around to watching it anyway? There's literally no other way to watch that film. Yeah. So, I, like, is there any film that you can think of that has just genuinely affected you in a really bad way? Not Chronicles yeah. of Riddick. No, I mean. <laughs> The one, the one that comes to mind for, so the one that comes to mind for me is when I the first time I saw Requiem for a Dream. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That was the former title I walked holder. Out of the cinema. Yeah, I walked out of the cinema and I just went like, "Oh, the world is awful and this is all shit. <laughs> what are we doing?" Yeah, what are we yeah, doing yeah. Here, folks. And I I had a very similar experience uh with Requiem for a Dream. And I only ever watched it once. I, I oh, I've, I've seen it like about ten times, which is probably <laughs> not a good idea. Are Explains you a lot. <laughs> I'm not joking. I've seen it so many times. Oh my god! I I could never bring myself to watch it again. Honestly, I never. And like the thought of it would give me trauma, really. And similarly, I haven't seen it for a long time, but I have seen it many, many times. Similarly with Snowtown, I. I cannot understand why anybody would watch this film more than once. It is just it's excruciating in parts. And and like but like okay so the 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 basic story of it of it is there's just this kid like at the, at the start close to the start of the film you see him um, get molested by his mother's boyfriend but like it's not in a showboaty movie kind of way you just it's just like the boyfriend volunteers to look after the boys one day and then it cuts and he's taking pictures of them in the nude he's uh, like, so it's like so all this horrible stuff happening in the background is just dull and evil and it's all pedophilia and rape and something all of a sudden enter the this the the mother's new boyfriend who's just this just charismatic brutish force of nature and you see the the oldest of her sons kind of get groomed into violence as opposed to sex and basically start taking part in a series of murders of homosexuals drug addicts and pedophiles with the mother's boyfriend and it is just like it's just one of those films that's just just the degradation in every section of every frame there's nothing good happening it's so like and oh my god i like and the worst thing was i stuck it on in the middle of the night when i was staying up when i was staying up with my baby and uh oh my god i like i almost had nightmares it really it really really affected me and it was the kind of thing as well that like I was telling Belen about it the next day, and of course, you know, she, like, generally speaking, when you tell people about films like this, it may, they want to watch them. And I was like, <laughs> like really? You yeah, get so I, many... I want to watch it. Oh, dude, you don't need to. <laughs> don't. It's so rough. Although, do and tell me what you think of it, because honestly, I'll never watch it again, ever. It um, is quite famous for, I mean, it's it's a film that I've heard about as being traumatic as the same way that you describe it so yeah i'm excited I'll, i will certainly never watch it again and I'll, uh, I'll, I'll watch anything once 
It actually took me so long to watch. Uh, one of the reasons it took me so long to get around to watching Lore mm. is because I envisioned it to be really, really dark. But the reality of it was that it didn't. I didn't find it as affecting as I thought I would. Anyway, well, we'll, we'll get to I'll, that. Like we'll 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 pop right into the this week's this week's films anyway. But one thing I'll say is. This is where you can very clearly draw the line between things like lore and something like Snowtown. But the uh, better example I would give you is, have you seen Manchester by the Sea? Yeah. Now, Manchester by the Sea is a heartbreaking movie, yeah? But Mm. it's simultaneously very beautiful. And I think it's more centered on love than ugliness, let's say. Right. It's also very funny. Yeah, it is. It's hilarious. Snowtown is an ugly-ass movie. And it's like, like it's about, it's a, it's a, it's about evil. It's really, really trying to get to the center of some fucking evil. And yeah, I like, I don't know, like the closest I like can think, like I can think of of those two kinds of worlds colliding, like you know sadness and evil and maybe the evil overtakes it like the you know what might be good at the about at the center of the picture is maybe schindler's list but i think even in the case of schindler's list you know something of the beauty of the story kind of wins the day in the end and i think in the case of lore like there's i mean the thing is about all three of the films this week and like honestly i saw berlin syndrome a few years ago and i did i thought it was fantastic when i saw it i think and this is to this is to say nothing negative of it but i think it's the um let's say the the least strong of this week's three films i think kate shortland is 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 just some kind of genius like she's an amazing filmmaker it's so strange that like when i think of kate shortland i put her into the same category as like lynn ramsey or someone like that. I prefer Lynn Lynn Ramsey's films, but I think she has the same way of of visual storytelling, really effectively marrying visuals with uh, audio, and focusing with a lot of close ups and and really the, the the main the key point for for Kate Shortland's films is I feel like she really gets the viewer into the mindset of the characters. Yeah, no, no, that's almost it. Exactly. almost they, like you can't you can't escape. Like the, you, you, you're forced to deal with the shit that the characters have to deal with. This is, that, that is it exactly. And actually, like I said, I would see it, say it's the least strong rather than weakest, the least strong of the three films. Yeah. But I think actually the best case for what you're saying is Berlin Syndrome because one of the characters that we're in, whose head we're in is, a, is the villain. But we're there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We're in it. I like honestly. I, um, Roger Ebert was known to say on multiple occasions that cinema was uh, cinema is an empathy machine, and I think you can that is very mm. evident in the films of Kate Shortland. Um, and I like it was, I'm so happy to watch all three of them this week. Incidentally, for me, the strongest one was the one that we would we won't so much be having a direct go at. I I thought Lore was fantastic. Just wow, blew me away. But, uh, yeah, they all blew me away, truthfully. It was a good week for movies. Yeah. I liked all three of them. I mean, Berlin Syndrome is a bit more conventional, mm. but then also less conventional because it gives you the perspective of the the victim and the villain, as you said. So you really get into, into both of these characters' minds. Anyway, um, kick us off, because I yeah. got loads to say about everything. 
Somersault is a 2004 Australian coming-of-age drama written and directed by Kate Shortland, starring Abby Cornish and Sam Worthington. This was Shortland's debut film. It won a whole host of awards in her native Australia and was screened at Cannes in 2004. What was your, maybe best to start with your, your overall reaction to this? I think you'll or get do you what want I, to give that later? I, I, I think you'll get what I mean when I just say, like, wow. Because it's, mm. I think it's a film that purposefully tries to confound you. It's tough to put your finger on what exactly it's getting at. But it gets at it, and it like it re it it really really succeeds. There's one moment in particular that I th like I thought just sort of zeroed in on almost exactly what it was getting at. But I mean, it's I, I don't know my I was blown away by it. But I mean I'm gonna have to watch it again. Like I'll have to. Mm. I was just gonna say it's kind of disappointing how difficult it is to get hold of it. I think it might be streaming on Amazon in the UK. I'm not sure, but like. I don't know about you, but the copy that I got from my local blockbuster was... Yeah, was skipping uh, a lot. Uh, yeah, it was like a 1080p HDTV DVD from, from that uh, Italian blockbuster. And it was just like, it's disappointing to not see something like this, like, well-maintained. Well oh, yeah. there's, there's a bunch of these films, like low-budget films that are just, they're going to fucking fall away into the yeah. sea. Yeah, they're no, not no. being properly maintained. No, 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 that and like that, like this is the, I don't know, particularly when it when it, like you've used Lynn Ramsey, but I mean, it's but like Terence Malick would be another good example, particularly right. when it, when it's these films that are shot in this ethereal way. Not only, I mean, would it be a shame to lose them, but they really more than on most films really benefit from a fucking super high definition transfer like mm -hmm. just so, yeah. like something really really pristine um you know something like something something like lost city of z for example you could probably do mm -hmm. with losing a few pixels because it leans into this kind of um i don't know autumnal cinematography so to speak but this is all like cutting and camera placement and like shots of people's yeah. fucking hands and mouths and stuff like that yeah it's very specific so i realized when i started watching it that i hadn't seen it for at least 10 years and i was wondering if it was going to hold up on this viewing because i originally watched it probably back in 2005 when i was in my early 20s and it's a film which is 100 percent imprinted on my brain like every single frame and I remember being blown away the first time I saw this town of Jindabyne and realized that you can actually go skiing in Australia because I, I had <laughs> yeah. no, no idea about that. And I, I, as I said, I think Shortland is an excellent visual filmmaker. Um, so many of the shots in the film just feel perfectly framed. I'm also a big fan of Decoder Ring, the, the post-rock band who did the soundtrack. And I think... The marrying of visuals and music are ultimately what sold the film to me. Uh, the cinematographer Robert Humphreys hasn't done a great deal else of note except three of the Australia episodes of The Leftovers, which are all beautiful too. Yeah. Um, however, in Somersault, it's really the washed out blue tones of the exteriors and the red lights of the bar and hotel drinking scenes that, that just make this pure art. Art. Like a Fast and Furious film. Well, I mean, let's not go crazy. Mm, yeah, so lower your expectations. So, yeah, this time around, I definitely feel older. Uh, Abby Cornish was around 20 in this, and she looks about 13. 
Yes. And Sam Worthington is also super young with his Australian mullet back before he became Jake Sully. And I feel like Sam Worthington has become a figure of ridicule over the years, but I always knew him first from Somersault. So in my head, I always think of him as a solid actor, despite all the evidence to the contrary in his Hollywood roles. Well, I mean, I like and still like Avatar, and I think he's good in it. So I've got no beef with Sam Worthington. Easy, though. I was glad to see him showing up in this. Uh, I would like I might have a bit of beef with him over that Terminator film he was in, but I mean, that oh, just wa- yeah. that just wasn't good. But he he also very specifically wasn't good in it. But I mean, yeah, I've got no, no major beef with Sam Worthington. In that Terminator film, there was the the problem was clear. It was because that guy was walking into Christian Bale's eyeline like la di da. Me and you are finished professionally. The greatest enjoyment I've, I get off that whole incident is a, a jingle Adam Buxton has made yeah. up of on it for his podcast, yeah. which he still plays and yep. I still really enjoy. No, no, so, no, 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 no. <laughs> I think Abby Cornish is excellent in this too. I don't yeah, know she's if you know, but she's a rapper as well. She raps under the name MC Dusk and she even opened for Nas on his 2015 Australian tour. That's ridiculous. Yeah, check out check out Dusk. She's putting no, out some more music. Of, I don't of even. I don't care if it's true. I wish I, I think didn't you know that. that your, you should put that into your life. You should know that she's a she does the rap. She's uh, a rapper. She's fucking annoying. <laughs> Just thinking about it. Uh, I haven't seen a lot of Cornish's work, but I'm happy to see she's in with Martin McDonough. She was in Seven Psychopaths and Three Billboards, so she's got that going for her as well as being MC Dusk. She was also in the Jack Ryan uh, TV show with John Krasinski. Right, with the old uh, Jim, <laughs> with uh, playing the character of Jim from The Office. Yeah, Tim from The Office in America. Mm. Going back to Somersault, the one aspect of the film that I was interested in revisiting and reevaluating is the inclusion of the character of Asperger's, who acts as a cipher for the two main characters and the audience to better understand their own emotional problems. I think that's what you were referring to. No, I don't know. I assume that really. that's what. No, that's not. Okay, well, intriguing. Okay, I'm interested. But I mean, to see what you, what you that, will have that to kind say. of that would riff on on what I'm talking about, certainly. Okay, okay. Well, we will come to that because I've read, I've gone into quite uh, a, a quite a bit of detail on that side of things. So, uh, the film starts with Heidi, played by Abby Cornish, living in Canberra with her mom and mom's boyfriend. She's 16 years old. She seems to be on the spectrum. She has poor emotional cognition, a general inability to grasp the effect that she has on other people, and she's extremely sexualized. She's the daughter of a young mother who seems to treat her more like a sister. One morning after her mom leaves for work, she attempts to seduce her mom's boyfriend after touching his tattoos. Heidi as a character has no awareness of physical boundaries and constantly either touches or encroaches on others' others' personal space. As Heidi and her mum's mulleted boyfriend roll around on the bed, Heidi's mum comes in and is understandably a little miffed. She shouts and screams at Heidi, who wants to embrace her mother and is overwhelmed by emotions which she can't control. Heidi's solution to this is to run away. Fair enough. You think so? That's uh, that's what you should do? I mean, I'm not saying that's what you should do, but I'm saying that's what I'm doing. Okay. See what 
this is your daughter's future. Anyway, so uh, she takes a bus to Jindabyne, a couple of hours away from Canberra. We're greeted by the washed-out blue tones of an Australian ski resort in winter as the season is coming to an end. The only contact Heidi has is the business card of a man who gave her a free ski jacket back in Canberra. It's hinted that she slept with him also. Yes. When she calls him up, he tells her to never, never phone. I can't do the accent. He tells her to never phone again. Let me just say as well, you just, just having mentioned my daughter. Yeah, this week's films acted as like a just trilogy of warnings for me as a father. Also, probably every film you're going to watch from now on will do the same. Oh, no, don't say that. But I mean, like, theme, like just all three of these just had elements that made me just think, oh, my God, my daughter versus the world. Yeah, it's, it's not, <laughs> it's definitely not great. I mean, one of them is a Nazi, for starters, mm. <laughs> like Hitler Youth. Can you guess which one it is, kids? So... At no point in the story does anyone refer to Heidi's age. No one seems surprised no. that a 16-year-old girl, and she looks super young, is drinking and shagging in this town. I'm guessing 16 is the age of consent in Australia. I didn't want to Google it to check. But you would assume people would show more care or interest, wouldn't you? Is this well, just okay? Well, I don't know is it okay, but, I mean, <laughs> the male... The male gender does not get a lot of credit in this film. No, and I kind of agree. I, 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 yes, yes, me too. Like I, I, I kind of agree with what Kate Charlotte's saying in all of these films. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I only wrote it down once, but then I put two asterisks beside it to, um, to I mean, put it together, put this, the following sentiment together with different parts of the story. And uh, the thing I wrote down was, lads are awful. The first time, like the first time she's in a bar in this ski resort town and these two lads just pull up beside her with these <laughs> this faces. This is where we are now. <laughs> like they have just, just willies hanging out of their mouths. It's fucking, and the thing is, as I recognized them as myself at a certain age, it was just not, yeah. not quite that bad. Yeah, I, I, my general reaction to this and, and more so in... Berlin syndrome is a bit of the kind of like, are we the baddies sensation? <laughs> and I, I think the answer is yes. <laughs> yes, certainly. So with nowhere to stay, Heidi heads over to the local bar and pulls a young ski tourist. They head back to his place for some awkward sex. The next morning after she asks to hang out longer, he tells her to leave as he already has a girlfriend back home. There's an element here of Freya's mother in the year my voice broke because that seems to be where Heidi is headed at this point. Yeah, she's just blown into town and yeah, could be just staying there, shagging around, essentially. So after being told to hit the bricks by the group of young ski tourist twats, Heidi goes over to the local ski wear shop to look for work. She has a very uncomfortable <laughs> interaction with the creepy store owner, where she propositions him to give her a job in exchange for sex. When a customer enters, he tells her to pound sand. Yeah, it's and then there is another uh, incident immediately after this where she's looking at a dude in a car, and he might be looking at her, and Ooh, you kind yeah. you kind of just realize, oh, this is the only way you know how to communicate. Yeah, it's uh, as I say, she's highly sexualized, and it's painful, and it's has the f no real concept of what's going on. But it's the first, it's the first in like instance of the three movies, but it's just like. Kate Shortland is 
just she just gets great performances out of people. I mean, all like all three films are really. I mean, they're nothing without the players at the center of them. And I mean, Lore has an ensemble cast of characters because there's such a big journey going on, and all of them like fully deliver. But I mean, here when it's just like revolving around Abby Cornish's character, we learn so much of her even her inner world just by what just by little cuts of the camera and cuts of her face mm-hmm. there's a thing in the film it's not quite explored but it doesn't really need to be she's kind of, she's very attracted to like aesthetics aesthetic, mm-hmm. like beautiful things patterns and stuff like that and you kind of just get i don't know like one thing like okay it makes it like it made much more sense then later in the film where we run into the kid with Asperger's, but I like I wrote down like innocent or a psychopath, like like because, but because uh, but that's only on account of the way she communicates with people, but the way she communicates and inhabits the world is sort of a different story. Mm. It's very very yeah. interesting the way they do it, um, and very effective. Well, these these scenes where she's interacting with creepy old men are punctuated by Heidi wandering around next to the lake. She plays in a fantasy world, playing childhood games. Uh, Throughout the film, she keeps a journal, which seems to help her decipher her emotional responses and the emotional responses of others as events unfold. And she keeps a record of all the, the nice, pretty things that she sees. So Heidi heads back to the bar where she runs into Joe, played by Sam Worthington. They spend the evening flirting before Joe takes Heidi to the local hotel where they have sex. The next morning, uh, Joe heads back to his parents' farm where he lives. The introduction to Joe's home life hints at the root of some of his own problems, which mainly seem to stem from an emotionally unavailable father. Yeah. Um, There's a revelation coming up about... um... Mm -hmm. Joe, which I like for me was just the way that that was pulled off. Okay. I thought was the the highlight of the craft of the film. But I I want to like okay. you. Okay, so you say you saw this like ten years ago. Um, did you suspect nah, yeah, the, well, revel- the last time I watched it ten years ago? Not the first time. Okay, well, okay. The so the first time you like, let's say, yeah, the first time you mm-hmm. watched it, were you? Do you remember being surprised by the revelation about Joe? Mm, yeah. I I mean well surprised is the wrong word. Um, yeah, because he's it's funny because uh, the Wikipedia plot synopsis for the film says something like Joe has above average luck with the ladies. <laughs> so yeah, that's kind of surprising because you're like, oh, okay. Well, he seemed to be doing quite well. <laughs> he seemed to be doing quite well. <laughs> <laughs> I would never have suspected a thing. I'd love to have it off with her. <laughs> but it's funny that you're coming to that as well, because uh, the owner of the hotel, Irene, lets Heidi stay on another night while Heidi goes to look for work, eventually finding a job at the local BP petrol station. Aha! Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> you have tongues as hot as the sun. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Go so, yeah, at the finger. same time... <laughs> At the same time, Joe is introduced to one of his mum's friends, a middle-aged man named Richard, who's recently returned from living in Paris, the old gay Paris. Now that Heidi has a job, Irene lets her rent out her son's old apartment at the back of the hotel. Joe goes over to help Richard pull his tractor out of a muddy field. That's not a euphemism. And in, conversa- and in conversation, finds out that Richard is, is gay. Well, yeah, okay. Th- to zero in on that, 
for, for some reason, maybe I'm making too big a, a deal a deal of it. But when he said when he tells Joe that he he's gay, and you just kind of see Joe's reaction to it, and the way you've seen Joe so far in the film, and he does not mm. seem to be the sum total of his actions. And then just when the other character says, oh, no, I'm gay, you watch Joe's reaction to it. For me, you just like it was just like, ah, of, of course, that's that's what it is. Um, and it's I, like mm. I just thought the way that that was executed was just like it was the very definition of showing and not telling in the, even though there was a bit of telling <laughs> in it. But like, you know what I mean? By the way, it's, you said this is not a euphemism, to the film. pulling a tractor out of yeah. a muddy... What would, what would that have been a euphemism for? Exactly? <laughs> I don't know. It just, anything <laughs> can sound dodgy. Fair, that's fair. After Heidi and Joe sleep together again, Joe is forced to reveal to his blonde-haired twat of a friend, Stuart, that he's fucking a girl from the servo, much to Joe's embarrassment. At the servo, <laughs> Heidi becomes friends with her colleague Bianca, and spends time with Bianca's family, including Bianca's little brother who has Asperger's. Joe takes Heidi out for a meal. On the way to the restaurant, they run into blonde dickhead Stuart and friends who make fun of Heidi for working at a petrol station, which seems more than a little harsh. Yeah. Heidi is completely unable to read humor here. In fact, she does not laugh at all throughout the film unless mimicking someone else's behavior, again hinting at her own developmental issues. Yeah, also as well, I mean, like, yeah, they're laughing at her for working in the service station, but you're kind of there going, yeah, you you guys are a bunch of losers that live in a holiday town. I mean, let's settle priorities here, you know what I mean? Yeah, that this was my ultimate point about not being able to read class at all, is like, I'm, I'm just looking at everyone in this film going like, who's who? Like, who's <laughs> winning and who's losing here? I have no idea. You're, you, I don't know. I don't know what's happening. When they enter the restaurant, Joe is very pissed off. In response, Heidi eats a big bowl of chilies uh, before Joe manhandles her to the toilet to force her to be sick. Back at Heidi's apartment, Joe nurses her in the bathroom. Afterwards, Joe goes to his mate's party and tries to pull one of the ladies before dickhead Stuart chimes in with his classic he's fucking a girl from the serve out line. Joe storms off straight round to Richard's house, extremely drunk, where after some conversation, Joe lunges at Richard with a kiss. Richard tells him to leave as it's clear that Joe has no idea what he actually wants. He's a confused young man. Back home, Joe talks to his father in the kitchen. Although Joe is in clear emotional distress, his father barely reacts at all. Yeah, it's rough. Yeah, I mean, basically, he's gay and she's numb. Over at Bianca's house, Heidi spends some time with Bianca's brother, who has Asperger's. This scene is where Heidi, while watching the boy deal with his condition, starts to gain an insight into her own behavior and its effect on others. When Bianca's dad gets home, he's revealed to be the creepy ski-wear store owner from earlier. He drives Heidi out to the middle of nowhere and basically threatens her to stay away from his family to ensure that his own creepiness is not revealed. That's a very disturbing scene. Yeah, it is. Watching that, I literally wrote down, oh, no. Um, and I also wrote down, please give me a happy ending. Because, I mean, you get, like, you, you like... I want the someone to jerk you off. <laughs> yes, I want... <laughs> no, what I wanted... Like, I wrote sorry, that down no, no. and slid it to the masseuse. What I actually wrote masseuse. was, please, just watching that scene of the two of them in the car, I wrote down, please give him a happy ending. 
So I, I like what I was more into was I wanted Heidi to wank off her friend's dad. <laughs> you wanted we, a sixteen-year-old to, to wank off a dirty old lecherous old man. Are we clear on that? Just just to put yeah, set the record straight. To, yeah. I did not want yeah, to be you. wanked off. I wanted to watch uh, be Cornish wank off Roy. In I, the car. You wanted to watch a twenty-year-old playing a sixteen-year-old. Exactly. I'm not a, I'm not a fucking an old pervert, man in a car. There was um, a nice view of a lake in front of them. So there was. It was a perfect it. place for a hand job. Beautifully shot and lit, no less. Yeah, it was actually. It was beautifully shot and lit. But I really wanted a happy ending at this point. And also, yeah, again, like we're watching movies with such a good regularity at this point that, like, just and you know we've both watched so many movies over the year that it's hard not to see the third act turn coming. Yeah, and, yeah. You're just going, oh no! It's gonna kind be kind of expect the worst. I it's gonna be sh- it's gonna be shit for a while now, isn't it? <laughs> you just know yeah. when that happens. You even know when she's the, actually the second she's riding the horse through the field with her friend. You're like, oh, it's about fifty minutes into an hour forty film. <laughs> oh no! Uh, so rather than being masturbated by Heidi, uh, <laughs> Bianca's father instead. <laughs> Tells his daughter that Bianca. Uh, no, sorry, wait. Okay, so rather, rather than being masturbated, <laughs> and this is not written. Obviously, I'm just picking this in. It's forcing me to keep it. Okay, okay, I'll, I'll cut. I'll, I'll change. No, 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 no. It's like forcing this to be maintained. So Bianca's father reveals to Bianca that Heidi propositioned him. Uh, When Bianca is angry at Heidi at work the next day, Heidi flips out screaming and then aims a hose at the window from outside while Bianca cowers in the petrol station looking genuinely terrified. She does seem mildly terrifying. She is because she doesn't have any boundaries. There's no real limits. Heidi goes back to the local pub, this time meeting two more ski tourist douchebags. She takes them back to her flat and they give her some weed. When she's almost comatose, one of the young guys tries to rape Heidi. At this point, Joe bursts in and beats the shit out of the Justin Bieber-looking date-rape prick. Not the one you would expect to, though, right? Yeah, the the other guy has a much creepier vibe at the start, but then he's the one who kind of backs down and goes like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. What are you, what are you doing, uh, bro? And uh, one thing I really enjoyed about the scene where um, Joe beats, the, be, beats him up is... So, I don't know, you're just trained to expect from movie cliches that he just he, he will proceed to punch him about ten times right. in the face. Right, bloody, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, taking out the frustrations of it on his own life, and yeah. then all of a sudden the characters are going, whoa, man, maybe there's something. <laughs> but, like, no, he punches him exactly as many times as this cunt deserves to be punched in the face. I liked that, because I thought, like, That's he was... A- it was satisfying, and he, your man deserved it. And you're like, yeah, good. I'm glad you got punched in the face. But that, I mean, that's like a proper Australian countryside beating of like, yeah, it's like the limit. It's how, it's how it used to be back in the good old days. You know, you would just get beaten the right amount for the crime that you committed. <laughs> and that's fine. And that's how it was. And it was good. And it was right. I do. This is strangely the other creepy guy who's not the rapisty one. He references Weekend at Bernie's too. That's right. And we talked about that last week, which yes, is we did. that was bizarre. It was, it was, was like, a mad coincidence. Weekend wasn't it? at Bernie's too. It was it's insane. 
But I guess every Australian film references or is connected to Weekend at Bernie's too, probably. That's why. The next morning after this event, uh, after Irene and Heidi argue, Heidi reveals everything about running away from home. Irene convinces her to call her mum, who drives over to pick her up. Before she leaves, she says goodbye to Joe. Both main characters appear to have come of age, at least in terms of making emotional progress. As Mm. Heidi is driven home, she looks out the window at the passing wintry landscape. The end. The end. Did you have an outcry? I didn't, but I did look at it and go, oh my God, I, I have aged. It is me who has got old, and these characters have stayed the same age. Was it, was, a, was it I who came of age? Maybe. That was a very I um, came. Matthew, Matthew McConaughey and dazed and confused kind of sentiment there. Yeah, no, well, I definitely cr- I cried when she hugged her mom. Anything to do with parents uh, gets me. I need to be shown a little, uh, like I need to have a picture of the emotion with the word printed under it. <laughs> and then that, that really helps me to know how to react in those situations. <laughs> I'm only uh, half joking. That's the worst part. Yeah, but I, like for me, that is the picture of the like, it, like literally. I could, yeah, I could be manipulated by something written by Nicholas Sparks if it showed like a father making up with his son in a certain. Like I would just, yeah, that would just break me apart. What's the worst film that you can think of that affects you emotionally? That that got a cry out of me. I mean, I don't know, man. All sorts of stuff. It's, it's a difficult question because I, I, there's like so many I, I, like I, I watch. I was watching. A, I watched a video of Tracy Chapman playing at the Free Nelson Mandela concert today on YouTube. Oh, I, I, yeah, I, I could see that definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I cried. Okay, so, you know, let me some more. Well, well, I'll tell you what. When I was be, when I was um, I was being I, I was a film critic briefly for a magazine in in Ireland, mm-hmm. and one of the um, films I got sent to review was the first Paddington film. Now I know ever like since then Paddington has become kind of famous for this, but back right. then it was not so. And when people got posted the reviews for like when people got posted the assignments that they had to go and review Paddington, certainly in my head I was going ah fuck I got to go review Paddington. Um, and it really took me by surprise how good it was. And, yeah, I was really shocked by the fact that in the in the closing minutes of the film, I found myself crying. But, yeah, I can't think of anything that just out and out dumb. All I know is once I got started, like, crying in films, I, like, for me, that that's like the, that's the orgasm of cinema, if it makes you cry. Mm. For me, that's the best thing. Yeah, I'm. I, I again, if anything is, I can be manipulated by, especially music. I think music. I'm very affected by music. The soundtracks of the soundtrack of films is very important to me. It's part of the reason why I really like Somersault. Because can you, that, can you go on? Because all of those songs, like I, I, I bought the soundtrack for that back in the day, and I remember like that music and the visual so whenever i listen to music in general i create visuals in my head i think about how i would apply it to a film or a video Mm. all the time I, i always think that way i always think of like mixing visual with audio together so normally the films i like the most are the ones where it's it's heavily soundtrack influenced i would say can you think of like I don't know something 
soundtrack particularly well, not just of these films we watched this week, but in general, something that might well, occur to you. Yeah, the first thing that comes to mind is Requiem for a Dream. Like the Clint Mansell score is like massive. I think that's yeah. a big part of why that film works and why it's so haunting. Well, are we going to do a quick run through lore, uh, lore or what? Lore, sure, sure. I'll just I'll fire through the plot synopsis of lore. But so yeah. in anyway, your final thoughts on Somersault were you were a fan? Oh yeah, yeah, I was a big fan. In general, I like. I just thought it's one of those things I was watching going, how did you get the idea for this? I mean, it, like, it's like a novel. Actually, all three of these, and I know this, the latter two were based on novels, but I mean, they, they're paced and they reveal themselves like really, really good, dense novels. And mm-hmm. th- like that is, it's just a fine mixture of camera placing, editing, mm-hmm. soundtracking, yeah. the, her getting good performances yeah. out of people. She's the real yeah. deal. She's just a, a terrific Absolutely. director, which, I mean, this would have come up later in it, but I might as well say it now. I mean, I get it. Disney are probably cutting her a massive check, but, oh, God. Yeah. I don't, I don't. <laughs> Kate Shortland, don't. <laughs> why did you do? Yeah, I get it. They gave you a massive check. But I mean, that's it. Could have been a Kate Shortland movie. You know what I mean? Well, I look forward to seeing Scarlett Johansson's hands and face in extreme close-ups <laughs> as she. To be, I look forward to. How I look forward to the are. next time I'm allowed into this a cinema to see a Marvel movie that's new. Me too. So, yeah, yeah. Lore. So I'm just going to read the entire like it's a brief plot synopsis. Yeah, but yeah, like, yeah. If you to... could please, if you could please hold your questions until the end. Thank you. Yurt. The film starts in the final days of the Second World War. A young girl, Laura, and her brothers and sister are abandoned by their mother and father, a soldier, who leave either to go to prison or escape punishment from the Allies. It's not exactly, it's not actually clear uh, where they end up. Laura is then tasked with looking after the young kids and getting them to their grandmother's house in Hamburg. So they start a long journey on foot from the Black Forest and find themselves in some harrowing situations with desperate and starving civilians. After a while, they're accompanied by a young man named Thomas, who looks after them and helps them pass an allied, allied patrol by showing his papers, which state that he is Jewish. He also bears the tattoo of a concentration camp and claims to have escaped from Buchenwald. Laura is a Hitler Youth member and is disgusted by Thomas due to him being a Jew. However, as their journey continues, she finds herself attracted to him, finally begging him to stay with them. Uh, it's fair to say she's a little conflicted, while they are moving from one allied controlled zone to another, one of Lore's brothers, Gunther, is killed. Also, Thomas bashes in the head of an old man with a rock, and Lore is racked with guilt over the incident. After finally reaching the train, Lore's brother, Jürgen, secretly takes Thomas's papers, and Thomas is forced to get off the train and leave them behind. Afterwards, Jürgen tells Lore that Thomas, in inverted commas, was not actually a Jew, but had in fact stolen the papers. When they finally reach their grandmother's house, Laura is tired of all the bullshit, refusing to follow civilized table manners and then smashing a number of her granny's porcelain figurines because fuck you, Nazi hypocrisy. The end. Yeah, that about sums it up. Right. I just, I loved this. I I think this is generally a fascinating period anyway, Um, just Germany after the war. Like seeing the Allies arrive, like the interlopers and the Germans just going, oh shit, the chickens are coming home and they're going roosting. I thought uh, like that was fantastic. I thought 
uh, the immediate the film immediately addresses something which I'll call the Mark Wahlberg rationale of survival, uh, which I would have had about uh, the like you know um, the invading forces in Germany. I would have just said, well, it's a big country, so you could just go hide out somewhere. It's like no, there's no hiding from invading forces. They're like canvassing every area of the country. You're not allowed travel, or the you know what I mean, just just so they can get a hold of the place properly. And uh, yeah. Uh, I thought Lore was uh, herself as a character was it's just a was it was really successful symbolism for where do we go from here essentially do you know what I mean the generation immediately preceding her have just basically left her for dead she's got to fend for herself and sort of figure it out with like what threadbares of ideology they left in her not quite fully developed brain all the bullshit they fed to her doesn't mean shit in the face of the oncoming fury of the world that's about to be unleashed on germany and there's so much conveyed minimally there's a scene where they have to abandon their suitcases which is just really affecting because it's Mm. like oh yeah okay is it we're living in the wild i like i think um it's another example of Kate Shortland being great with just um, minimally conveying like raw emotion, particularly like, yeah, just the general teenage randiness between Laura and um, Thomas sure, is yeah. just like that. Like that's just so well done. And yeah, particularly that that final scene or that final series of scenes where she can't dance with the, the housekeeper. Mm. And then when she just says, fuck it and just eats her food fuck the way she wants to. And then smashes all the ornaments. I just thought that I just thought that was just fantastic, just really, really excellent. Um, I loved it, really. I'll watch this again. I think Shortland's films are just so visceral. Like they, like we said before, they force you to inhabit the characters' minds, mainly thanks to close-ups and visual storytelling. But in this, in all three of the films, like you can smell the film, you can taste the film. Mm. And you, it just you know, it provokes such a strong emotional reaction. You know what's amazing as well about Lore? It, it, lore, I, I'm pronouncing it like they do in the film. I would have said Lore before, but Lore... Uh, I still say Lore. You're in World War Two. You're just there. And I think the most they give to suggest you that is a few uniforms. Mm-hmm. You're like, there's... Like, whatever. Like, this film did lose money, but it still wasn't made for that much. It cost about $4 million to make. And mm-hmm. you are as much in World War Two as you are in Saving Private Ryan. And now, I'm not saying they wasted any of the money in Saving Private Ryan because they're going for a completely different feel. But so good are the performances here. Because I, I think they, it's mostly done with the performances of the children. I and, and a highlight for me in the middle is, you know that weird old lady and everything in her house is covered in black stuff? Yeah, yeah. That's like a really creepy episode. I I found that one to be co- like, and also, I mean, for anybody, it's 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 interesting as well. If you just know anything about that period of history, it's like nobody. If you have the opportunity to be in the American section of Germany, why the hell would yeah. you go into the Russian one? The the Russian section is the one that they cross towards the end, isn't it? Yeah, where the that's, younger, that's where, where the younger yeah, brother Gunter dies. gets shot. Mm. Yeah, because there seems to be a lot of Allied propaganda, or else, I mean, or like Nazi propaganda that they seem to believe that they're going to be raped and murdered by all of the Allies, when probably only the Russians might yeah, have done that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's only the Russians, really. Yeah. <laughs> 
I mean, but the, like uh, there's historical accounts of um, ju- like si- German citizens in German citizens in Berlin trying to get to the Russians before the Americans could get them. Like this is something that happened because because for some I must have been like yeah in general the propaganda that had been um, wi- like that that had been thrust at them over so many years about like the Americans and the Jewish conspiracies or whatever they were thinking about it when really like the the Soviets advanced uh, in a we- in, like a western direction across Europe with nothing but like bloody revenge on their minds <laughs> like just yeah, like yeah. oh like uh, horrific stuff anyway uh, the conclusion I mean to draw from all of this is World War Two is the best. It's just the best. Yeah, well, to, to to go back to, again, quoting that Stephen Carlin joke again, but as we've already said at least mm. twice, or at least once on the podcast so far, but if you don't like World War II, there's just no pleasing you. There's no pleasing you. You cannot be satisfied. There's just no pleasing you. It's got Aye. everything. It's got everything. So this, moved- this film is basically... Wait, this oh, film is basically serious, serious Jojo Rabbit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that works. Did you like Jojo Rabbit? I enjoyed it well enough. I thought it was, I thought it was good. I, I didn't think it was as great as people were saying it was, but sure, I thought it was a good enough film. Yeah. But you know, some people were like really horrifically offended by Jojo Rabbit. Why? Because of I think the levity that they, with which they dealt with the Nazis. I don't think it was particularly sympathetic. <laughs> to the nazis even if it had it's more making fun of them if anything yeah which i i didn't really have so much of an issue with because it like i don't know yeah yeah I, I, robbie if you, collins if you ridicule something you're think. not empowering it the other i wanted to give a shout out to uh the score which is by max richter yeah max richter is great i you've um, but this is probably not his most memorable work i know it's quite it's quite low-key yeah it's very minimal yeah but um but still love the love the old Richter scale. Yeah, you you pushed me in his direction there a while ago and I I went um and just you mentioning him again now I'm going to I'm probably going to end up listening to him tomorrow when I'm doing something. I mm. really yeah. I went through a two week period of just listening to a lot of his stuff. It's great. Um Oh wait, I did have one final lore question for you. Go on. Is it 100% definite that Thomas wasn't a Jew that he had stolen those papers or does it even matter? I don't think it matters. Mm. Yeah, I, I that kind of would resonate a little bit with what, like, um, I mean, Laura's whole revelation of everything being meaningless mm-hmm. is that it it yeah. essentially doesn't matter. He might be, he might yeah. not be, you know. Yeah. But you know, uh, she didn't get to jump his bones, so. Damn. Cares. That's so interesting as well that like you know people going uh, it's just actors in those photographs because that was a real thing as well. The fo- yeah, the, like, yeah, that that felt really prescient. It was disturbing to hear them talking about pictures of the Holocaust and going like it's all fake. They're just crisis actors. <laughs> but uh, like yeah, disturbing. yeah, that that was a real thing that people were saying. Madness, absolute madness. Yeah, some um, some Alex Jones shit. Yurt. All right, uh, let's whip out so. Uh, the mo- her most recent film. Well, it wouldn't been had Black Widow been released yet, but yeah, anyway, the one that we should have seen Black Widow. Yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, Berlin Syndrome. Berlin Syndrome was released in 2017, starring Teresa Palmer and Max Reim- Reimelt. Reimelt. Reim- I'm gonna say Max Reimelt. Uh, Reimelt. Base- Reimelt. 
based on a book by Melanie Houston and then adapted by Sean Grant, who also wrote Snowtown. Um, it's definitely her most traditional story structure. It's a, a, a simple enough setup, but I mean, it's it's simple. Like I don't know, for some reason, what it made me think of was uh, you know the Jonathan Demi movie Something Wild. I have not seen that. I've. I listened to a podcast about something wild when at last time I was in Tokyo, <laughs> bizarrely. I remember walking in the streets listening to a podcast about something wild, a film that I've never seen. So if anyone's listening to this and they haven't seen the films, good on you, but I've done that myself. Um, well, I might eventually get around to, li- to to actually watching something wild, but... It's a it's a simple enough plot, but ju- it's just because I suppose Jonathan Demi was such an interesting director. He makes it interesting by using you know interesting locations and. But is, isn't that also like a film that kind of switches genre halfway through? Yes. Right. Yeah, yeah. Are you certainly. saying that this film does the same? Uh, no, not quite. I'm just saying that it's like the reason it made me think of it is it, like on on. If you're reading the blurb of it, you're thinking, oh, I know exactly what I'm in for here. And you don't know what exactly what you're in for here. Right. That That's you, you, That's a good point because I didn't watch, I hadn't, obviously hadn't watched this film hmm. before the other day. And uh, I'd always said like, oh, I'm a big Kate Shortland fan, but I'd only ever seen Somersault. <laughs> I never <laughs> got around to watching Lore or Berlin Syndrome, but... Reading the plot synopsis to this film, I was like, yeah, 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 okay, I get it, I get it. Because I'd already, I I think at some point I'd, I'd read what happened in the film uh, because mm. I thought like, ah, I don't know if I'm actually going to watch it. But then watching how that unfolds, it was clear to me like, oh, yeah, 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 like her power is not some great big like narrative reveal. It's it's how it makes you feel and it's like a character piece. Yeah, I and like th- this is saying something, but like, any of the films that we watched for this week, I'll I know for sure I'll watch them again at some point. I mean, and not just because they all clock in under two hours, which <laughs> I'm not gonna lie does help, but I know they're just like mm. they're just just great watches, really. Yeah. Mm. So to, to take up that mantle again, you just mentioned it, uh, cinema being an empathy machine, and thereby for a good portion of. This film, I was absolutely terrified. It's a, it's a really, it's a scary film. I found, I, um, yeah, and yeah, yeah. I think that's the correct word because you're really scared for the characters. I mean, the Wikipedia entry, which is actually a funny Wikipedia entry just for one phrase, which I'll get to, classifies it as a psychological thriller horror, and I think it definitely qualifies as a horror because. And in in oh, a much def, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of like visual elements in terms of gore. And there and it's there's there's a thing that can happen when you're watching a horror film where you uh, where characters make stupid decisions and you shout at them, and it, that makes a horror movie yeah. fun in my experience. It's but it's just a different type of horror movie. You know, don't go down to the basement, you idiot. But this one is scarier for the fact that I don't really think. Yeah, because I don't think Claire does anything stupid here. I think she's, like, her situation very, very quickly becomes hopeless. I should get around to explaining what happens to the poor girl. Even though, I mean, honestly, if you're listening, hopefully you've seen it already. Uh, So anyway, Claire arrives from Australia to Berlin because that's a city where 
I imagine Australians people travel when they can. You're a, you're a big Berlin fan, right? Yeah, I was thinking about that. I go for the last five years. I've probably gone at least once a year. And do you think do you get a good impression of the city from this film? Uh, yeah. There's definitely like there's scenes where she's walking around, and it's very clearly places that I've been before, and it you get a sense of the city, but. As soon as she's in the apartment, it's kind of game over at that point. <laughs> yeah. Every, anything else that you see is from... Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Everything else you see is from Andy's perspective. That really freaked me out that the, the bad guy's called Andy. <laughs> I didn't because even think of that. He, I, he was, everything he did, I was 100% on board going like, Jesus, Jesus, <laughs> Shortland, why are you in my mind? <laughs> Well, anyway, uh, she arrives and goes to, I don't know, what looks like an atypical hostel roof party kind of a thing. That felt very Berlin to me, actually, that that uh, section. And then on the street later, we get our meet-cute between her and Andy. He drops a book and offers her a strawberry, I think, is what happens. That was uh, classic. Yeah, indeed. Uh, they go strolling around the city, and he makes a mistake with his English says uh, he likes to walk in, through these gardens if he wants to complicate life. And then she laughs at him and says, you mean contemplate? He's like, oh, I suppose I do. And then she picks... It was actually at that point that he decided that he was going to do everything else that he did in the rest of the film. It was purely because she made fun of his English, corrected <laughs> his grammar. That was what inspired the rest of the plot. This is when we get a real, the rat symbolizes obviousness moment where she picks up a wolf mask. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She she picks up a wolf mask and he's wearing like a woolen coat. <laughs> <laughs> I, did, I had not noticed so, that. Yeah, no, yeah, it's, it's full on. Uh, so like, yeah, wolf in sheep's clothing, essentially. Nice. Mm. Uh, yeah, anyway, then he drops her back to the hostel. She's... Um, supposed to be going away the next day but she decides to stay runs into him in the same bookstore where they had met the day previously and um long story short back to his place Boom. shagging session so claire doing well done, no, Andy. claire doing no work to undermine stereotypes of australian girls in hostels there unfortunately she's a strong powerful woman and she's doing what she wants to do it's just unfortunate that she she ran into the lo the wrong guy. Indeed, yeah. So then all of a sudden, we're off with him at his job, watching him teach classes, interact with his colleagues. One of his colleagues seems to fancy him a little bit. Another one of his colleagues is Lou from Little Britain. Or is it Andy? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I think it's... Is it Andy? Are they all called Andy? Yeah, yeah. The, the, uh, the one who's in the wheelchair? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Are you referring to? Yes. He's not in a wheelchair in this film, but yes, looks like uh, Matt. What's his name? Uh, Matt Lucas. Yeah. Anyway, so there we're we're seeing his the way he is in class and his job. For, uh, and I suppose that makes for an interesting dynamic because then I mean you just get to see the guy seeming like a normal person, and then you get to see him later being a monster, and he's a monster in a very just creepy way. Anyway. What, so what happens is, essentially, yeah, they had had uh, a bunch of lovely sex the night before. As he was, as he's going down on her, uh, she seems a bit nervous, and he says, "Don't worry, no one can hear you," which we get it's very a one comforting. Yes, indeed. Then uh, when he 
she gets up the next day and realizes she can't uh, open the door. He arrives back and there's a oh hi for did you did you lock me in did you lock me in oh no 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 I thought I left the key etc etc and he soon kind of just brushes past that issue by um you know instigating another shagging session this time in the sh- in the shower but the next day it really sort of dawns on her that she's trapped and he begins to ignore her questions and instantly in an instant the movie is properly scary and yeah. i had seen it already but yeah it is it's scary you've all, we've already seen his neighborhood the building he lives in at this point it's, it's like nothing there yeah yeah she it is isolated she begins to scream and then if we're back on andy's side because everybody loves a callback he says no one can hear you i was like ah oh, this nice everybody likes a callback anyway mm-hmm. And we spent some time with his dad. What did you make of these scenes? Did you feel that they were trying to rationalize the way he was? Not really. I mean, I don't really understand all of the DDR, GDR, like East German stuff that they're talking about. I don't really. Is that like some communist era shit that they're going on about? I didn't really. I don't know a lot about that. But I didn't I didn't see any real rationalization because over the. Well, I mean, apart from the fact that Andy's just fucked up. Because, but I wouldn't say it was his father's fault. I mean, it doesn't appear to be. It just looks like he's, <clears throat> you know, got the whatever like uh, screw loose programming gone wrong kind of mental mm. illness. That because you see that he, he, over the course of the film, it well, first of all, number one reveal. He, this is not the first time that he's done it. He's done it before, mm. and then you see him trying to pick up a girl in a very similar way, and it's because he's. Like, he was physically attracted to her. He also has the episode where he's staring at his uh, his uh, pupil. So he's just a, a kind of extreme, deviant, fetishistic murderer. There's no deeper examination than that, except that we do see a bit of his background and his family life. Do you think there is anything to this film being set in Berlin? I mean, that's where the novel's set, right? So, I mean, it's just an adaptation of that. The way I see it is, well, okay, so I think Kate Shortland is maybe lives in Berlin or she spent a bunch of time living in Berlin. But, I mean, most of this was filmed in uh, Australia, I think. Because really? they, yeah, they built a set. The uh, flat set is built in, like, Melbourne, I think. Um, so that was all done in a studio. Um, but I think, like, she clearly, I mean, she's made two films set in Germany. Yeah. One of them entirely in Ger- almost entirely in German. Yeah. So she's also Jewish. Um, she married uh, a Jewish man and converted. So I don't know if that had, uh, must have had an effect on uh, the making of lore. Yeah, sure. I would imagine so. Anyway, so... From his interactions with his dad, I suppose, like, yeah, we, I, I, I don't know, you do pick up a little bit of angry, anger at his mother, but I mean, like, I suppose one of, yeah, one of the main reasons you might be there with him and his dad is so that we get to see him telling his dad about his new girlfriend at the same time we're being shown like a montage of him just uh, beating the shit out of Claire, dragging her across the floor and tying Mm. her to a bed by the time we see him return back from work the next time she's you know pissed and shit herself and it's just horrific i mean she's just really in the pre in the process of of breaking her as a person Uh, both of these guys are are incredible in this film as well they both are really really committed um 
I'm I'm almost using the word brave. I feel people would use the word brave. I don't think actors are brave, but I do think they're really, really good. We get to see a little bit in a while when he's out. She's no longer tied to the bed because she's realized that the windows are reinforced and she won't be able to break her way out. So she's free to wander around the apartment. She finds a screwdriver, stabs him in the hand. But we're under no illusion that she's getting out at that point, are we? No. Then he pervs on a student in a while. Uh, This is the part of the Wikipedia article that gets funny a little bit. So yeah, we see him kind of leering at a student and then all of a sudden she shows up at his house and I quote the Wikipedia article expecting some funny business. (laughs) That feels like it's written by a German. Yeah, yeah, right? (laughs) (laughs) No funny business. Well, he tells uh, Franca to go away, basically. Just at the point where she sees Claire in the background emerging from the shower looking broken he closes the door and resolves the situation i think that is actually the point at which claire is kind of broken he has sort of won at this yeah. point um, that's the that's the syndrome element kicking in yeah and like i haven't mentioned it yet but yeah he's taken her sim card he's been texting her mother saying she's all right it seems and all the while actually taking creepy ass polaroids of her Andy heads to his father's house for Christmas, uh, only to get up one morning and discover his father has died in his sleep. When he leaves, he turns the power off and the water as well, and Claire is just left wandering around eating anything that's left in the house. And That was brutal. Yeah, it's real grim. And the, then she, when Andy comes back, she seems... He, happy to see him like relieved and she comforts him in his grief for his father and um has sex with him in a way that doesn't make him have to rape her i don't know is the phrase i'm I'm looking i'm looking forward to watching a film where the main rapist character is called donica because every time you say my (laughs) name (laughs) i get like that kind of you know it's like a buzz in my head when someone says your name you're like oh i feel like you're gonna have to write that movie Andy gives Claire uh, her father's dog and in a way that works quite like the Louis C.K. joke, which says um, buying a dog is a lot like buying a heartbreak in 12 years time, because the only reason that this dog seems to be introduced is so Andy can just kill it in a while just to uh, I don't know. Like, why does he kill the dog? Because she's grown quite close to it and she's showing a lot of affection. It seems to be quite comforting to her and it's almost like taking away some of his power. Yeah, yeah, fair enough, actually. Makes sense. Uh, He takes her out to the woods, but they run into a couple of children. She asks them for help, but ends up just scaring the shit out of them. Yeah, there's really no good way out for Claire. But then we even, I think... Is, get... is, is he planning to kill her at that point? Like, yes. was he going to murder her in the forest at that point? I don't think so. I don't think so. Because, I, I mean, he's... the way that it's cut kind of hints that he's, like, just about to swing the axe at her when hmm. the kids turn up. That's, that's, how, that's how the shot is cut. I mean, in, like, film You're right, language. he did have an axe, yeah. But I just wondered if that was just they were trying to play on her fear because she's kind of almost seems like she's given into it. And she's because she's just kind of standing, walking into the forest, seeming to know that he's about to swing the axe at her and kill her. But she's okay with it. Jesus. 
But I mean, because the the the, whole, the syndrome has taken over at that point, or like she's lost hope to an extent. But then she snapped out of it when she sees the kids and the and the mother. Yeah, and then that's kind of a relief to even see see her talking to the younger boy and asking for help because we get to see mm. yeah she's a bit alive again. We get to see a she's little bit more there. of that soon on New Year's Eve where she attracts the attention of somebody outside. In the meanwhile, meanwhile Andy is at a New Year's Eve party which he. Sp- burns the advances of his female colleague who wants to have it off with him as uh, Lou from Little Britain plays the drums. And then um, we get... He's also, I mean, he's he's physically very uncomfortable with, with touch. Yes. Yeah, he can't... So like, there's... I don't know if they're hinting at something there that... Um, I've read... I've read that Kate Shortland theorizes that he wants to create sort of a utopian society in his own home. Oh, so he's a Nazi. Nice. Something like that. Yeah. Because I don't know. He like, yeah, his mother left the what is it? The GDC the second she could and abandoned the family. And he wants to. That's what Kate Shortland has theorized. I don't think that's necessary Uh, to know, Mm. which is maybe why it's not included in it. Yeah, because Um, I don't like that. I just I mean, it doesn't it doesn't explain why he's like as much of a deviant as he is. And like he's wants to torture. (laughs) He wants to kind of hurt and torture these ladies on the way home from the New Year's Eve party we get to see him try his do bad english on purpose routine again with another unsuspecting tourist the whole contemplate complicate compliment mix up and success he gets corrected but what who who looks to be the mother of the lady who he's trying to proposition oh, i thought nothing i think they're just friends they're like the two like french that. tourists aren't they Okay, well, any anyway, the the hint is there given that maybe he might be offing Claire very soon. Um, mm, yeah, he's meantime, shopping. He's on he's on the prowl. He's looking for a single lady. All the single ladies. In the meantime, uh, Claire attracts the attention of a stranger from outside, and it, she looks close to being rescued. But uh, Andy and I take one look at the runtime and know that it's not going to work <laughs> out for this. You know, it, it's actually a Andy, great, Andy, me this time. Yeah. It's actually a great shot because the guy makes it just outside the door, and then uh, we just get to see Claire looking through the peephole, and Andy appear behind the would-be rescuer and batter him to death with a crowbar. The only thing I don't like about that is that is the most conventional thing out of all three of the films is like that's the most kind of that's like the lowest lowest common denominator thread of everything. It's probably you're going to see a lot more of that in her fourth film, Black Widow, I imagine. Just yeah. in terms of like cinematically, it's not very exciting. It's something you've seen a million times before in yeah, like that's every fair. horror film ever. Yeah, that's fair. But it is what it is. It's kind of necessary, I guess, because they're just, you know, they're showing the. It's giving Claire the clear evidence that Andy is a killer, and mm. he will go that far. Yeah. So, uh, and then it's it's around this point that she manages to get into what had been a, a closed off room in the apartment, and she finds pictures of his last girlfriend, Natalie you know, bunch of similar poses to the, girl. to the ones that she's been forced to get into all these other Polaroids and she knows, oh shit, I'm on the way out soon. So she concocts a plan, which is actually pretty smart. So what she does is she, he's a teacher um she's, he's correcting exercise books. She burns her mm. hand and demand he goes get some burn cream 
and she puts a Polaroid of herself all bound up into the exercise book of uh, one of his students, uh, Franca. The girl the, from before, Franca. The girl from before. Uh, the next day in school, Franca opens up her uh, returned exercise book, sees the Polaroid and runs out of the class. Unfortunately for her and for Claire, but fortunately for the tension of the final 20 minutes of the movie, <laughs> dropping the Polaroid on the floor, Andy finds it, other students looking at it and immediately just kind of knows, oh no, I'm fucked. The gig is up, man. It's yeah. game over. What transpires in, once Franca gets to the apartment building was unclear to me. I couldn't work it out. But the That's this is this is the least this is my least favorite part of the film. Yeah. Yeah, I agreed. It doesn't it didn't make much sense to me. I didn't understand what because happened. Because they've already like yeah, why did they choose to remain in the building? Because they've so Frank has obviously got back somehow they've smashed open the box where Andy keeps his key to the door. They've opened the door and got out and then for some reason they've gone up to one of the empty flats up above and are hiding. And so Andy gets back, goes into his flat and hears noise from upstairs and is like, oh, okay, I guess they're upstairs. And then yeah. does a kind of cat and mouse chase thing, which ends up with him getting reversed and being, uh, getting tricked. Uh, Claire traps him in, back, in, back, in the, back in the flat. But I mean, yeah, like, why didn't they just get the fuck out? Yeah, I didn't get that. I, I didn't know what happened. But I did think her initial plan was, was very good. But I suppose you just mm. need that tension in finishing. I mean... Or at least, you know, you think you do for this kind of film. I mean, overall, it's like it's like we said at the start, it's, it's the most conventional setup of any of her films, mm. and I suppose the ending is the most conventional in the end. But in the middle of and all also of not it, not only that, like because it's based on novels, so I mean, it's not like it's not like it's her original idea. She they still have to be faithful to. You know, yeah, and plus what we the, said was, I mean, itself. her her grand skill set isn't in these narratives. It's in, I don't right. know, how she presents them, really. Her her skill set, really. Well, it'll be interesting to see what that means for Black Widow. It will indeed. I'm, yeah, I'm pretty looking for it because I think, like we've said, I think the only, like, out there filmmaker whose vision has fully survived in the Marvel yeah, Cinematic big, Universe big, is Taika Waititi. Big Taika. Yeah. Um, and that's I, funny. That's funny that two of those... so. Two filmmakers that have made the serious Nazi child film and the comedy Nazi child film have gone on to make MCU films. Mm, yeah, true story. So, overall, this was a great week. High pressure on the next one, frankly. And particularly... My, my fi what's your final ranking? Of these three. Number one, mm. Lore. Number two, Somersault. Number three, Berlin Syndrome. For me, it's chronological. I still, Somersault is, as I said, is so heavily imprinted on my brain. I'd have to go that first. I, I, could, I could almost draw Somersault, like, if I had any artistic skills. But <laughs> it would be stick figures. But I could draw, like, I feel like I know That'd that That would be film, fine. Like, I'll, entirely. I'll take three copies. Yeah, you look, you look perfect. I'll get them to you by 2027. Uh, so that would be number one. Then lore, because... I think uh, it's still, it's like you said, it's World War II. You can't really go wrong. It's, uh, it's such an interesting time period. And to see that story told the way that it is, I mean, it's, again, it's a very uh, beautiful, well-made film. I liked Berlin Syndrome. It, it was affecting and it, it 
it functions really well as a horror slash thriller, but just compared to the other, it's just not fair. It's a, you know, it's like compared yeah. to the other two, it's it's in a different weight class. It's, it's it can't it can't punch it with the same weight as those. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, tell us what because I want to react very specifically to it. Tell us what are you presenting for next week, Andy? So yeah, my film for next week is one that I missed. I just haven't got around to watching. But I thought I should watch it, seeing as it's filmed very, very close to where I'm living in uh, towns of Crema, Bergamo, a few other places, and near Lake Garda. And, uh, and that is 2017's Call Me By Your Name. Okay. I'm not going to be telling any tales out of school here to say that uh, I've seen this film twice, and uh, I liked it less the second time, which is why I'm... I, <laughs> I hope you don't win. <laughs> Oh but really? Would... You you no, you really don't want to watch it? Oh, that's no. interesting. Well, like, no, I I yeah, I, I'll be honest. No, I I wouldn't be mad to watch it again. But I do enjoy just watching films to skew to skewer them and take them apart in the way that we kind of do here. Yeah, so yeah, I would yeah, be yeah, willing to enough. go out uh, for that to, uh, like from that direction. But I have watched it quite recently as well. So, but I, I just I didn't want to. Um, well, maybe the... you can remember it anyway. Yeah, yeah, but no, 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 I no, 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 I would watch it. Um, I didn't want yeah. to spoil the watering hole. Legally, I, I, you have I, to. Exactly, exactly. All right, well... That's fine. I mean, I, I've, I've heard enough people say that they like it, so it would be interesting to hear uh, a negative view. All right, so mine is 1973 Senegalese drama film, Tuki Buki. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I remember when I was a kid, I had my Tuki Buki lunchbox. I had a Tuki Buki t-shirt <laughs> that I used to wear at school. Okay, you got a coin, or is it my week? It's your turn, I'm afraid. Okay. 50 or Cervantes? Come on, 50. You've never let me down before. Okay, here we go. Except for all those times where you let me down. Cervantes has won. Oh, thank God. So tell me, what would I have? What would have been my gay sandwich? You're... <laughs> Uh, I was flicking through the many gay options, but then I just decided to go same director and namely the first one in that particular trilogy, the Desire trilogy. I think it's called I Am Love. Another film okay, by we'll uh, never Luca Guadagnini was, was what we were going to be watching. But we're not going to be watching it. What are we going to be watching with Tuki Buki? <clears throat> so Tuki Buki screened at uh, uh, Cannes in 1973. So I decided to choose one of the two films that shared the Grand Prix that year. And uh, I went for 1973's Scarecrow, starring mm. Al Pacino and Gene Hackman. Yeah, I've heard of that. I was looking that up recently and thinking, how has this passed mm -hmm. me by? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's the same director as Panic in Needle Park, which I think I watched a million years ago. And um, yeah, it's some kind of road movie apparently with Al Pacino and Gene Hackman so some kind of like midnight cowboy-ish vibes sweet okay I suspect I suspect the brow for next week's films is so high that we'll both be looking for superhero films the week after we will indeed I noticed that uh, Tuki Buki is on YouTube but with Spanish subtitles which I'm tempted to actually watch it with Spanish subtitles yeah I think I, I could, could manage that yeah, it'd be all right. All right. Well, until that auspicious anyway. occasion, I'm way past my bedtime. Yeah, me too. All good right. Night. Peace out, hombre. Be good. Bye. Call me by your name.